I'm Father Mitch Paquin, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition. Today, we will begin looking at the way of the cross, Jesus' path towards death. And we'll take a look at the reality that all of us need frequent reminders about suffering as an essential component of being a disciple of Jesus. It's part of life in general, but disciples of our Lord are able to see their suffering in a different context, namely union with him in his suffering. For that reason, Catholics over the centuries have had a strong devotion to the Stations of the Cross, going back at least to the 13th century, a devotion brought to the world by the Franciscans primarily. Now, as we discuss these important issues, if you have any questions or comments, especially related to today's topic, we invite you to be part of the show. You can do so by calling us at 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460, which works in North America. Outside North America, you need to call 1, the country code, area code 205-271-2980. That's 1-205-271. 2980. You can also contact us through email by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, we are beginning today chapter six of my book called Wheat and Tares Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can still get that book at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com where it is item number 81098. 81098. We are starting today's discussion on page 131. And something else is uh, a bit of a note about this. Um, we will be going through the section on our Lord's suffering and death all through Lent. And then it'll be sometime after Easter that we begin covering the appearances of our Lord in the resurrection when he rose from the dead and the meaning of the resurrection. And then we'll go on to Ascension and Pentecost. So we're actually going to be following roughly along with the liturgical uh, seasons of Lent, uh, Easter time, and the Pentecost time. So it may also be uh, an extra help to your own meditation on these holy seasons. So that, that may be something useful to you. Now, the introduction to this chapter is a discussion about the importance of the cross to begin with. This is not something that merely happened to Jesus. I remember there was uh, one rather uh, cultish group, kind of a pseudo-Christian cult, 
that said, well, Christ wasn't supposed to die. It was something that happened because bad people got a hold of him. And therefore, because he died on the cross, he failed. And then you have other folks, uh, for instance, uh, in Islam, in Surah 4, verse 157, it denies that Jesus died on the cross. This all, and, and the principle was that God would not allow one of his uh, uh, prophets to be killed in that way. So that was one of the uh, principles. And, you know, this points to something that we have described throughout the centuries of the church. That is the scandal of the cross. The Romans made fun of Christians because they portrayed Christ crucified. They had crucifixes. So there's a Roman graffito uh, showing a crucified man with a donkey's head as a way to show that anybody who believes that their Messiah had been crucified is as foolish as a donkey or as dumb as one. And this kind of scandalization at the cross of Christ is fairly common uh, in the world. We, on the other hand, have to listen to what Jesus taught about it. The cross was no uh, accident. Remember when he sent his apostles out on their first missionary trip. He sent them out two by two as the, the, the twelve to preach to the towns and villages before he got there. And we see in that teaching in Matthew 10 verse 38 that our Lord says for the first time but not the last he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now the apostles, like any of the other people living in the Roman Empire, would have known exactly what he meant by a cross. People were crucified on a regular basis, especially for things like rebellion. Uh, it only applied to non-Roman citizens. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified by Roman law. They were beheaded, uh, that, which is a faster way to die. Um, and this is something that, you know, we see uh, in, in the ancient Romans, among the ancient Romans. Uh, that's why St. Paul's always portrayed uh, with a sword because his head was cut off. He wasn't crucified. Well, at the same time, Peter was crucified. He wasn't a citizen. And then we also see this instruction repeated a bit later, right after Peter's confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It says in Matthew 16, verse 21 to 23, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this should never happen to you. 
But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. This is a very important uh, verse where he tells Peter, right after saying that you're the rock on which I'll build my church, he also rebukes him for trying to deny the cross. That's pretty powerful. And calls him a stumbling block. And the, 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 you know, the hindrance or stumbling block is the word skandalion, scandal. So here our Lord is teaching that the cross is a scandal. Um, that's very important. And then in Matthew 16, 24, the next verse, he turns to the crowd and says, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This being this willingness to take up the cross and follow Jesus is a sine qua non, a necessary element of following Jesus Christ. That's why in various ways, no matter what your vocation might be, it entails carrying crosses. Marriage has its own crucifixion to self as you learn to live with another person and learn to give up some of your initial desires. In priesthood and religious life, we have to do the same in other areas perhaps. But you know, this is an important and necessary part of all vocations. But it's interesting and very important for us to keep in mind. Jesus did not say, you must go and suffer for me. He didn't say that, did he? No, he said that you are to follow him, come after him. That means he's going to go first. So it's not like somebody saying, well, you do this, and then sits back. No, no, no. He is right there in the midst of the suffering. That's why in the letter to the Hebrews, twice, we see that Jesus, our Lord, is called the pioneer of our faith. The first episode of that is in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, where it says, But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, a verse that's quoted from Psalm 2, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Again, a reference to Isaiah 53. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, this is a very rich verse. It's, it, it says in that, that, that uh, paragraph that all of creation exists because of him, for his sake, and it is created through him, by him. This is 
the, uh, a very important uh, element. Creation came into being through Jesus, God through God the Son, who then became flesh. And yet he also is a pioneer of our faith by suffering first. But then we are to follow the pioneer. Also, we see again this idea of Jesus as pioneer of our faith in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where it's after having described a lot of the Old Testament holy people, the Old Testament saints. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Again, a powerful verse. I don't think we reflect enough on the meaning of that. That Christ is the pioneer of and perfecter of our faith. But he does so by going through death on the cross. He doesn't worry about the shame. Remember, being killed as a criminal is something that you don't want to have happen, especially if you are innocent. And secondly, you don't want to suffer the pain, especially, you know, crucifixion was a very painful way to die. That's one of the reasons that the Romans used crucifixion. They would leave people on crosses sometimes for days. The people who died with Spartacus back in the first century B.C. had hung on their crosses for days, and then even after they died, they were left there to rot as a warning to any other slave who wants to try to get free, this is your fate. It was a horrible death, and Christ didn't let that stop him. So that's a very important thing. And part of our task, and this is one of the things I want us to consider in this chapter, it is important for each one of us Christians to remember that we too are to follow Christ in suffering. He says it's necessary as to be a disciple of Christ. We'd like to have a nice life, and there's nothing wrong with having it, but it is still an essential component of being a disciple. For that reason, Catholics over the centuries have their devotion to the cross, Stations of the Cross, as I mentioned, and there is a great deal of writing 
about the suffering and death of Christ. One of my favorites from more modern times is Archbishop Sheen's collection in his book about the seven last things. He used to preach about the seven, it's not seven last things, but the uh, last words of Christ. And he would preach about the last words of Christ year after year in New York City. And that those sermons have been collected. Um, that's, that's important. But also, when we take a look at the structure of the New Testament, we can see that the section on Christ's suffering and death is usually the longest section of a gospel. The only exception to that would be in the Gospel of St. John, where our Lord's teaching at the Last Supper is longer than the Passion narrative, the story of his suffering and death. In the other Gospels, the description of Christ's suffering and death is the longest section in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is a very important point. Now, there's another consideration that we also have. Um, I think when we take a look at Christ's suffering, we can apply so many different kinds of suffering within the church. We can certainly look back on the uh, amount of persecution. And right now, the large amount of persecution taking place within the, the world today. Uh, I've mentioned on other programs how Nigeria is the number one country experiencing religious persecution. Where you know about five thousand Christians a year are killed, and since the turn of this century, so in just the last twenty-four years, there have been sixty thousand altogether. But the last year was five thousand plus, and we also see the church is getting a new level of persecution in places like India and a number of other places, even in uh, some countries that were traditionally Catholic, um, you know, under the more Marxist regime in places like Nicaragua, there's been persecution of Catholics for their Catholicism and priests and such being arrested because the government was communist and talk many other things. So this is one area. The various sicknesses, sufferings, family crises, sometimes family death. Right now we are suffering 100,000 people dying just from fentanyl poisoning. And, the, and that affected my own family. You know, so this is something that affects lots of us. But it also is something that will help us understand the sexual abuse crisis by Catholic clergy that especially took place in its biggest numbers between 1965 and 2002. You know, that, that uh, bell curve of uh, increased abuse. And I think 
that we consider our Lord's way of the cross, his suffering and his death, uh, and the Gospels and his burial, all of this can help us further understand the experience of those who were abused as well as their families and friends, as well as you know, the rest of the church and the suffering it's gone through, what clergy have experienced as a result of this, especially I'm talking about those who did not participate, the vast majority did not participate in that abuse, but still suffer from it. <coughs> and I think this is a way to offer some perspective, not only on our own pain, but on the pain of others. And to see, especially our pain, as well as the pain of others, in light of Christ's cross and suffering. That's what we want to approach. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back in just a couple of minutes uh, and we'll continue on with this topic and then go to some of your questions and emails. So please stay with us. We've been discussing why we are now going over to focus on the uh, suffering of Christ, especially his way of the cross, his death and burial, and taking a look at uh, you know, that material's way to understand our suffering and the suffering of others. And a very important passage uh, that's part of this is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 5. It prophesies right around 540 B.C., 540, 539, probably about 540, where it says that he, the servant of the Lord, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. This lays out an extremely important principle. It is not merely that we suffer and imitate Christ. That's not the basis for this whole chapter. Rather, the basis is that Christ's suffering 
first of all and primarily has a power to heal us. His suffering on the cross is the source of grace for us. And this is very, very important to understand that we seek the power of his suffering. And we want to see all aspects of his wounds. And we can find that different aspects of what Christ endured to save us and heal us, to remove our sins by his sufferings, as well as give us wholeness. That is what we are seeking here. And that's what we want to better understand. So a couple of things, though, we can do is take the suffering we do have where we pick up our crosses and undergo difficult things in life and we can unite it with him and unite it with his suffering. This is a key part of our Christian life. As St. Paul taught in Colossians chapter 1, we make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ by our union of our sufferings with him. That's what this is about. And that's very much part of our sacred scripture. Now, how do we do this? One, every day, each of us can pray the morning prayer, the morning offering. And by making an, offer, an offering of our whole day, we make everything in our day a prayer. We offer him our prayers, good works, joys, and sufferings. These are what we say, I give to you, Lord. And we do so, for, the, as Paul said in Colossians 1, same passage, for the sake of his body, the church. This is one of the things. Secondly, and most importantly, we unite our sufferings with Christ in Holy Mass. As, we, as the priest offers the bread and the wine, we put our sufferings with them on the paten and in the chalice so that as the grains of wheat were crushed to make the bread and the grapes were crushed to make the wine, so also those moments when we are crushed and sometimes baked in the heat of history and fermented in suffering, this is a great symbol of our suffering so that at the moment of consecration when the priest takes the bread and says, this is my body, and to the cup, this is the chalice of my blood, that our union, our, our offering of ourselves with the bread and wine now becomes a union with Christ crucified because that moment of the consecration at Mass is primarily focused on representing Christ's suffering and death on the cross, but in an unbloody way. And we are united with him so that at communion, which celebrates his resurrection, 
we can also expect resurrection. This is key. And we do that at Mass. That's why it's good to go to Mass often. Lent is coming up. Daily Mass is a great practice. To go as often as you can is a great thing. And as we do so, when we enter and receive Holy Communion, then we are in communion with Christ's pain so that he can bring healing to us in our difficulties and sufferings. This is one of the key things. So that's what we will be doing. Now, I just want to have us prepare to start going through the way of the cross. That's the first step. The way of the cross is actually treated in very succinctly, very shortly, by uh, Matthew, Mark, and John. It's Luke that gives a few more details. Some of the details he has in common with others, some are not. So, for instance, we see that after Jesus left the praetorium, which is the place where Pilate held court, um, that he was helped by Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is a, 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 an area in what's now Libya. It was kind of under Egyptian domination, but there were a lot of Greeks there and a lot of Jews, a large Jewish community. And Simon is Jewish since he has a Jewish name, Shimon. And it says in Matthew 27, verse 32, as they were marching out, they came upon a man of Cyrene, uh, Simon by name, this man they compelled to carry his cross. See that in Mark 15, 21, and Luke 23:26. And then they all all the gospels mention that the way of the cross ended at Golgotha. Matthew 27 verse 33, a place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull. That's what Golgotha means. It's Aramaic for skull. And it's also in Mark 15:22, John 19:17 and Luke 23, verse 33. So it's, it's there. And none of the other events on the way of the cross are mentioned by the other gospel writers. Uh, either they weren't of interest to them, or more likely, they didn't know about them. Um, remember, the gospel writers didn't just sit there and receive inspiration from God based on something they didn't know, they, they would have interviewed people. St. Luke says he interviewed different witnesses. That's why you see differences in the way the Gospels are written. That some of the, Luke knew some people, especially in Jerusalem, and that's where he gets his information. So let's take a look at an example of that, namely the women who were there and, uh, and mourned with Jesus, our Lord. Uh, this is the eighth station in the Stations of the Cross. In Luke 23, verse 27, it says, There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who bewailed and lamented him. And Jesus spoke to those women. He's, while he's carrying, well, at least walking uh, you know, with Simon carrying the cross, Jesus turned to the women and said, 
daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never gave suck. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? That last question is based on a, a, a saying. Middle Easterners use a lot of proverbial sayings. And they said, if they're doing this when the wood is green, what will they do in the dry? In the rainy season, the wood is green and it doesn't catch fire and things like that. Uh, and it, it has strong. But when it is the dry season, wood becomes very brittle and more susceptible, of course, to fire. So if you are acting this way in the good times, wait till the hard times come. And this is his warning to them. It's amazing and a very important part when we pray the Stations of the Cross to see how these women were trying to comfort him, but he turns it around and comforts them and warns them about greater dangers in store because it will be 40 years later that Jerusalem is attacked by the Romans and destroyed, and it gets so awful during the siege that the Jewish historian Josephus describes how at least one woman, but he implies that there were more, had eaten her own child. You know, that's how hungry they were. And it was just chaos. And the, the, the thing is that they had rejected Jesus. And that's why the suffering would come. Now, he had already predicted that. In Luke, we see in Luke 13, verses 34 to 35, it said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is also found in Matthew 23, verse 37 to 39. This is a warning that if they don't accept him, they will suffer and die. And in fact, again, I urge you, if you get a chance, take a look at the Jewish historian Josephus. He wrote a book called The Jewish Wars. And in there, he describes many things. But one of the key causes of the destruction of Jerusalem is that the Jewish community was attacking the different factions within it. Jews were killing Jews. And sometimes they were destroying, the, they had saved up food that could have lasted them for a couple years. But they destroyed their own food because they didn't want the other faction to get it. And that, you know, Jesus' prediction would have been quite, quite helpful had they learned to follow him 
and love their enemies, they would have done better. And I don't say that just, well, that's a problem for Jewish people. No, it's a problem for Christians through the centuries who sometimes tear at each other and attack one another in the same way that the Jews were attacking the Jews inside Jerusalem. Christians have done that to each other. I remember reading in stories uh, about the Soviet gulags, sometimes one group of Christian would tell the guards that another group of Christians was celebrating mass if they didn't like them, and they would turn them in. Uh, this, was, this was crazy and self-destructive. So this is why our Lord said, alas for those who are with child, for those who give suck in those days, for great distress shall come upon the earth and wrath upon this people. That our Lord is describing that those who have children at the time of the destruction, what are they going to do? They can't run with the kids. They, they, where, where can they go? They're, and you can't leave your kids in the city and run away. Uh, it's, it's a horrible, horrible situation. That, and we see when we, and that was another part of the problem, that a number of the Jews, especially the zealots, would try and kill people who did try to leave the city for safety. If you tried to get out of the city so you could avoid all this catastrophe, they killed you. Interestingly enough, Eusebius of Caesarea, in his great book, The History of the Church, it was called, sometimes known as Ecclesiastical History, says that the Christians remembered this phrase, this teaching by Christ to the women, and his other teachings about the destruction of Jerusalem. And they left before, as soon as the war began, they left and they went to what's now the kingdom of Jordan and they waited it out knowing that Christ had predicted this and they survived and they returned after the war was over and rebuilt the upper room and formed their own Christian community. Jesus was trying to help people in this crisis. And this is a very important thing for us to remember. I'm going to stop there. Um, there's more on this, but we'll stop there and we'll begin again uh, with this, uh, the, with the women along the way of the cross next week. So we we'll want to get over to make sure we have time for our questions. And we have already a caller calling in. We have Anne, who is in Illinois. Anne, what can we do for you? Oh, Father, thank you for taking my call. Oh, sure. Um, you, have a, you have a very interesting show today. Thank um, you. But my question was about scrupulosity. Yeah. And at the beginning of Mass, um, we say, you know, we say that prayer, I confess to Almighty God and to mm -hmm. my brothers and sisters that I have greatly sinned. You know, I don't know if you know what prayer I'm talking about. I do, of course. Okay, well, well <laughs> yeah, I, whenever I... I celebrate Mass, too, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but um, whenever I say that prayer, I feel like I'm greatly sinning by saying that I greatly sinned when I have not greatly sinned. And so... Um, 
so you know, like, he, okay. Oh, my so, and that makes you feel what? Well, like all, I feel like I'm greatly sinning by saying that I greatly sinned by confessing mm -hmm. to God that I, I have greatly sinned and telling my brothers and sisters that I've greatly sinned. Oh, when I haven't okay. Sinned. <laughs> all right, all right. Here's one of the things. Do you say that to yourself when you at mass, or do you say it well, with the whole out, parish? I say it out loud with the whole parish. Yeah, the whole parish. This is a prayer meant for everybody in church, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, I happen to know, largely because I'm sometimes hearing the confessions before and after, that some of the folks there do commit bigger sins than others. And, you know, this is something for the whole community. And, you know, to pray that with the community is not about you falsifying something. It's, I wouldn't worry about that. It's you also praying with the community to call our community to when there are serious sins in the parish that we repent of it. And that's something that is uh, very, very important. So I wouldn't uh, say that, um, you know, you are, you know, taking on a false claim that you're a big sinner, but you're praying with the others who are. And that's, in that way, you're actually being kind of a support to them. That they can, you know, because one, one of the big things in modern life is that a lot of people have great difficulty taking responsibility for their sins. Sometimes even psychologists will help people to blame their parents, their society. Sociologists will blame uh, uh, structures of sin and all kinds of other things. And there are people who simply need to take responsibility for their sins. When we pray with them, even though your sins may not be the great ones, you probably have sinned in your thoughts and in your words as well as in what you've done and what you failed to do. You know, even if it's not a great sin, most of us do that. And we can join in the part that is relevant to us and at the same time say the prayer with everybody as a way to support those who did commit bigger sins. So it's not that you're committing a grave sin by saying that, but rather you are just trying to go ahead uh, and, you know, help out those who have sinned. Does that help? Um, yes, Father. Yeah, th th think about that. Just, well, I'm going to pray for the, for the ones here who need more repentance. You know, I don't, uh, maybe I haven't committed the sins they have, but there's some people who are, and I'm going to be praying for them at that point. That's what I would ask you to do, okay? Yes, Father. All right. Yeah, but I don't think you're being deceptive there. All right. Um, I have an email here. This is from an anonymous writer. 
Um, I don't know who this is, but um, it says, Father Mitch, my husband and I moved several years ago to a different city. A few years ago, I came across a small box in our storage closet that was never unpacked. I opened the box and among some miscellaneous things, I found my picks that I used several years back when distributing the Holy Eucharist to the home round. I opened it and found a consecrated host. Needless to say, I'm horrified that I could have been so careless and I'm so scared that I've committed a horrible sin. I don't know what to do with the host. I put off asking this question until my conscience just can't take it any longer. Can you guide me on what to do? Anonymous. You know, what you may do, there are two things. Um, you may go to your parish priest and say, look, Father, this was inadvertent. I, I don't even remember how there, when this happened. But, you know, we still were unpacking things. We had moved years ago. This is what I found. And you can ask him to take it. But you can also consume it yourself. And then purify the picks. Don't take it to the sink and wash it and rinse it down the drain. You know, there may be particles. There probably are particles of the host there. Purify it in water that you can catch and then drink that water. Um, that uh, is, uh, th that'd be the way that I would do that, okay? So, um, you know, I, I, you know it, it's not something that you did on purpose. It obviously was a mistake. You, it's not something that you commend, but it's, it, take care of it now by uh, consuming it, or if you prefer, Take it to your local pastor. But if you do consume it, purify it carefully, perhaps purify it in a bowl of water, and then you consume the water yourself. Drink that water so that, you know, particles of the host would not be going into the sewer or any such thing as that. Uh, I want to be very cautious with that, okay? You can do that, you know, in a prayerful way. All right. Uh, I have a caller, Patricia, in New York. Patricia, what can we do for you? Yes, Father, thank you for the call. Can you kindly tell me when at communion the, the church went from the loaf of bread, say regular bread, store bread, and, and started, ended that, and it became the white consecrated host? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the exact year. A priest, I think he was a Franciscan friar, his a brother who lived in Bethlehem at the shepherd's field. There's a church built at the shepherd's field. There's some caves, and the church is built above the caves. And there were early churches there uh, from the 3rd, 4th, uh, excuse me, from the 4th, uh, 5th, and 6th centuries, and a very early baptistry from the 1st century. And we see that uh, he also found a number of stamps to put on the hosts. And it seems that by that Byzantine period, they may have already been using a, uh, an unleavened bread that would be easier to preserve. You know, 
in the Roman rite, uh, we can only make the bread from uh, water and flour. And one of the advantages of the small hosts is that they don't get moldy. You know, um, they, they can, uh, matter of fact, uh, back in the 1930s, uh, some of, uh, uh, members of one of our seminaries had taken a host and it wasn't consecrated, it was unconsecrated, but they put it there and it lasted. Uh, they, 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 somebody remembered it uh, about 30 years later. And they, uh, yeah, it was from the 30s until about the early 60s. And it had been at the seminary, uh, just stored there, and it was still intact because it didn't get moldy or decay. And that's one of the things that was of concern. Already in the early church, during the persecutions by the Romans, Christians were taking the Eucharist home, and during the week, they would take the, uh, the, the body of Christ, the consecrated body of Christ, and mix and take a cup of wine, pray together as a family, read scripture, and receive the host. Um, because, you know, again, they were being persecuted, they couldn't go to daily mass. And they needed to get a type of bread that wouldn't mold. Uh, because then you can't eat it, then what do you do? So that's, that's what they did. And I'm pretty sure that, uh, well, I know uh, people in the Middle East make a type of unleavened bread. Jewish people call it matzah. And they would dry it out and then consume, consume that. Um, today, matzah is kind of like a cracker. Um, that would be what they would use. Uh, as a, but I'm not sure the exact year uh, probably varied. And in some parts of the church, they continue to use uh, uh, something that is a bread that has leaven in it, a type of rising power. So in the Byzantine church, they would use uh, leavened bread and still do. Um, but the, for instance, uh, the Syriac churches like the Maronites and the uh, Syriac Catholics and others use unleavened bread that would not, you know, it, it become moldy. So that's, you know, one of the things that would be, be the case. Now, I know in the Byzantine church, they perfected their way of making the Eucharistic bread so that it doesn't get moldy either. Uh, low, low water content. But, you know, that was the, the purpose of it. Does that help? Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. You very much. Yeah, good. All right. Uh, just before we get on with more questions, just want to remind you to join me uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live tomorrow night, Wednesday night. We'll be with author and apologist Gary Machuta, and we will talk about the traditional biblical interpretations, especially about the words of Jesus Christ and his deeds are being challenged and how we can demonstrate that what Jesus taught and did 
was accurately recorded and passed on to future believers. So that's a very important, I think, very important topic for us to look at. And then oh, go on to uh, another email. Uh, this is from Susan in Bedminster, New Jersey. Dear Father Mitch, I have some concerns about the honoring of the Blessed Mother that I see in the church. Over the last several hundred years, there have been many supposed Marian apparitions where, according to these messages, Mary seems to be saying that we have to say prayers through her, and she also requested that one or more churches be built in her honor. I find that very odd. There are also many references that we have to pray the rosary, etc., as if we must have Mary intervene to act as a conduit so that our prayers can be heard or answered by Jesus. I cannot believe that humble Mother Mary would ever want this kind of adulation and attention. I think perhaps that Mary as an intermediary figure is uh, in superior standing could make one lose sight of God, Jesus himself. A distraction of sorts. Your insight would be helpful. Susan in Bedminster, New Jersey. Well, Susan, I'd like to go into that in more detail. Um, one of the things you may find helpful is my book on Mary, Virgin, Mother, and Queen, who, uh, I have a section there about the devotion to the saints, but in general, the various apparitions of the Blessed Mother that have happened are first of all tested quite a bit, and we, we take a look at the message. And it's important that you say it's Mary seems to be saying that we have to say prayers. It's not that you don't see that in her words. She is more inviting people. What is said in any kind of an apparition or private uh, revelation is not something that is required. No such private revel revelation can require us to believe anything. Only the public revelation in the gospel and in the apostolic tradition and the church's teaching, those are required for belief. But the, uh, all apparitions are optional. And as far as having churches that you know, are built in certain places, they are places of ministry and, for her, uh, and her intercession. So that, for instance, at Lourdes, millions come and thousands find healing there. Same at you know, uh, Fatima and certainly at Guadalupe, you see people leaving crutches and wheelchairs behind after their heal, plus all the many other types of healings. And it's not that she's saying, you know, bring on the adulation. She is praying for us and she invites us to pray with her. She is interceding the way we ask one another to intercede. And as we see in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 3, the intercession of the saints in heaven for us. This is how God has ordained it because they're still part of the church, and so is she. So that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Well, I'm out of time. Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. 
May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, this network is brought to you by you when you keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. At that point, we can pay our bills too. Thank you for your support.